Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Sunday morning matinee where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today we are going back to a classic, Billy Wilder's 1959, Some Like It Hot. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how Some Like It Hot might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Some Like It Hot might help us understand the lectionary passages for the for Transfiguration Sunday on February 23rd. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, Adam, Some Like It Hot regularly shows up on the lists of the funniest movies ever made. This is Billy Wilder at his directorial and writing peak. The dialogue crackles. The hijinks escalate perfectly. The performances from Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe are all off the page. But I think our job isn't just to figure out whether this movie is well executed. I think we have to think about how well this movie has aged and how critical it feels for us in 2020. In 1959, this thing was wildly controversial. It's a movie about two Chicago musicians who go on the run after witnessing a mob massacre, and to get away, they have to hide in an all-female jazz band. They do this by dressing in drag and by playing with gender norms and gender stereotypes for the runtime of the film. There are ways in which this movie plays pretty fast and loose with some of those traditional gender identities and sexual preferences, in ways that raised the ire of cultural critics at its release. The movie was made without the approval of the Hayes Code, which was a huge deal at the time. And then it was ultimately censored itself, even though it didn't go on to win a bunch of Oscar nominations. But just because something is controversial in 1959 doesn't mean that it holds up well for our modern needs. So I'm wondering, what was it like for you to revisit this one? And does it still feel relevant to our contemporary life in theology and the church and in the world? Yeah, so I think it's good to recognize that this was made in 1959. That's nearly 60 years old. That is a long time ago. And there are a lot of 60-year-old movies that do not hold up either because of their political leanings, because of the ways in which movies were made, because of our expectations of movie plot and structure. This movie, and I think this is its highest praise, is still funny. It's it's still really funny. And I, I was watching it in my bedroom on my computer well, my wife was going to bed and she kept getting mad at me because I was giggling hysterically from just the performances, the pacing, all of it just continues to work. And I think in in many ways, that's it's my highest praise for it, which is it it's a movie that to me holds up in the fact that the, the comedy still makes sense. And in the same way that like I saw a great performance of Midsummer Night's Dream at um, the public theater in Central Park many years ago and 
Kevin Klein played Bottom, the um, the the one who gets turned into a donkey uh, in this performance, and he was hysterical. He was able to take Elizabethan language and mores and understandings and still coax out like this incredible performance and make it incredibly funny. I think the beating heart of the humor of this movie, it, it comes from a lot of different places, but Jack Lemmon is incredible in this movie. His energy, his sort of like manic energy, the way that he's like changing uh, from um, from the, the the bass player, the upright bass player to the to the to the to this female um, character, Daphne, is is in, is is just belongs in the pantheon of sort of comedic experience, uh, performances. And um, part of what makes it so amazing is that m- most comedic performances that want to go like to another level um could actually be funny if you sort of dialed it back a little bit more um jim carrey sort of made a career in the early parts of his career by trying to go over the top and it ages really poorly actually like i loved ace ventura when it came out but now when i watch it like i don't find it funny i just find him sort of disconcerting um but in the very rare occasion the answer to a great performance is not dialing it back. It's like turning the performance all the way up and breaking through some unseen comedic barrier that only the true genius can understand. Um, and while Tony Curtis gets to play a bunch of different parks, uh, Jack Lemmon gets to play Daphne. And he's so damn electric in it. And his manic energy, I think, just kind of propels the movie forward in a way that um, that makes me want to revisit it more over and over again. So... It's still funny. Jack Lemmon's performance is amazing. And then finally, it's not mean, right? There's a lot of movies that sort of their comedy is built off of poking fun at things. Nowhere in this movie do I get the sense that this is designed to sort of like, A, poke fun at women, or B, poke fun at those men who would dress in women's clothing. It's a function of plot that then opens up into some new and unexpected realities that I think gives this movie heart. And um, between those three reasons, I think this movie is just, it's a masterpiece. It's incredible. What about you? I think it is a masterpiece. Um, and I think it is incredible. I agree with all of that. And I, and I do think, I, I will admit that before I revisited it, I had a little bit of apprehension about revisiting it for a couple of reasons. One, because I remember loving this film when I had seen it previously, but it has probably been at least 10 years since I have watched it. And and two, because I'm, I'm aware that I, I know more about the complexities of identity related to gender and sex uh, and even dress and gender conforming dress expectations than I did the last time I really enjoyed this movie. Yep. And so the question was like, am I going to still be able to enjoy this knowing what I, I, I the best I can as a 40 year old straight white dude know about that stuff now. And and I, I think I, I really did. That doesn't mean that there weren't moments that threw me a little bit or tossed me a little bit, but what, what allows this movie to work for me. And it's what I knew going through the whole time was coming what allows this movie to work still is is how resolutely it refuses to clean up after itself. <laughs> yes, yes, it is a trail of mayhem from like top to bottom. Yeah, and... but, but the I mean, and I'm I'm so glad you brought up Midsummer Night's Dream because I think this movie is deeply Shakespearean, 
I mean, it, it, and it is, I, I go to Twelfth Night for somewhat obvious reasons, because Twelfth sure. Night is playing with gender norms and playing with um, boys dressed as Dress. girls and girls dressed yeah. as boys and all of that. Um, but Twelfth Night, of course, and Midsummer Night's Dream, and so many of those kind of classical comedies of mistaken identity, which is what this is. It is a very basic classical mm -hmm. comedy of mistaken identity. They, they are meant to resolve in unmaskings and marriage. Like that yep. is th that is the Elizabethan norm is that at the end everybody sees everybody else for who they actually are underneath underneath the costumes that they have temporarily put on themselves, and then everybody gets married. And what I love about this movie is that it that could have been a deeply heteronormative turn. Yep. Right. Like you put Jack Lemmon back in his place. You put Tony Curtis back in his place. You allow. Marilyn Monroe to fall in love with Tony Curtis as he actually is, which they do, and it does give that nod. And then in the front seat of the boat, you have Jack <laughs> Lemmon, who unmasks himself slowly, almost begrudgingly. You get the sense that he actually is not. He doesn't want to do he it. He doesn't want to do it. He, he he doesn't want to do it not just because he doesn't want to break Osgood's heart, but because he doesn't actually, I think, like being himself more than being herself exactly. i mean it's it's very complicated right he doesn't know who he prefers to be at that point and so he does it with this kind of begrudging <clears throat> i'm actually a dude underneath it and osgood without so much as glancing at him says well nobody's perfect the end and it is it is the most sublimely messy and oh. life-giving ending that i can imagine and i love <laughs> it so much and it is because of that that I am allowed to enjoy the rest of this film. Because I know that it's not going to try to stuff all of the messy complexity of gender and sex um, back into some neat package at the end. Um, the way that classical comedy would have done so previously. And so that that is what just gives it life for me. And that, that makes it so ahead of its time, right. too. I mean, it, it and I think that's... Uh, I think that's Billy Wilder's genius too, which is, I mean, he wrote this movie, uh, co-wrote this movie and is, um, his hand is in it everywhere. And he's, he himself doesn't mind the complexity of it all while never losing sight that this is supposed to be funny. Right. Right. And he finds the sort of absurdity of it all funny. And it actually reminded me of this, this quote that I love from Errol Morris, who himself finds delight in absurd characters in his own documentary filmmaking. Like, I mean, Gates of Heaven is like, a, just like a funny, crazy little documentary about pet cemeteries. And, um, and he says to love the absurdity of people is not to ridicule them, but to embrace on some level how desperate life is for each and every one of us. And I get the sense that, that Wilder in making this movie is loves the absurdity of it all because he understands that like, at the heart of each of these people, whether it's uh, the Jack Lemmon character, the Tony Curtis character, Osgood, or Sugar, Marilyn Monroe, they all want to be loved. They just, they're looking for affection and they're looking for attention. And they think that the, they want a particular affection and attention from someone who's rich or someone who's male or someone who's female. But once they get the true taste of what that affection actually can feel like, they stop caring about who it's coming from. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that to me is like a tremendous um, and beautiful sentiment 
to lay into a movie, which is Wilder recognizes that we have these drives. And this movie is, I mean, in many ways, not just about wanting to be loved, just want to have sex. And um, and Tony Curtis and Jack Levin and Marilyn Monroe all want to have sex in this movie. And they never really do. And Billy Wilder like frames Marilyn Monroe in a million different suggestive ways. And it's and the ways in which sort of sex and euphemism operate in this movie is pretty funny. Um, but at the heart, at the very end, no one consummates anything. But but they do, though. I mean, Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe get it on in the boat, right? I mean, you don't see it. They cut away. But she doesn't come back until the next morning. Yeah, but but like the consummation ultimately isn't done there, right? The, it's It's done... Finally, at the end, and as they go away, and you don't know where they're going next, and they're like, everybody is, like, the love happens when you finally get to see the person for who they are, and that everyone gets to see each other for who they are is, like, it's sweet. It's actually, it's very tender and sweet by the end of the movie. No, it absolutely is. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I agree that it's unconsummated, but I, I do, it's, it's definitely got a, a sense of um deep kind of romanticism and um and kind of tenderness underneath it that i i think um serves it very 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 well and certainly serves me really really well um and and i think too it's 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 worth reading this movie over and against this sort of the main plot mechanism for why they have to dress up as as women right which is you've got gangsters who are trying to kill them mm-hmm and they are witness to like a true massacre. Like it's a, it's a sad, it's a really tremendously sad opening and violent opening. And ultimately like you, you get into the sort of machinations of these gangsters and, and I always got the sense and, and I got the sense again, watching this is that they're the villains of the movie, but they're also sort of aping this masculine stereotype that the rest of the movie is playing around with. Right. They're the foil by which everyone is um, by which Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon can dress up and be funny. And you're supposed to ask at the end of it, like, who's like the real the real man here? And I don't think it's surprising that Billy Wilder thinks the artist is right. Like these are two musicians. They're like they're people who like make art. Um, And he seems to suggest that, like, however, however you want to frame the gangsters in this movie, whether they're just gangsters, whether they're sort of like the the business side of people who wear suits every day, or um, whether it's people who are sort of entrenched in the categories of identity in their own life. Billy Wilder sort of, he gets to send them up. And if there is a sort of lightly making fun of anybody, it's those stereotypes of gangster movies. I agree with that entirely. I, I, I do wish in the course of that send up that the that the head gangster wasn't the only person in the movie who could immediately recognize uh josephine and daphne (laughs) for being biological men dressed in women's clothing (laughs) because he does so immediately uh out out of the hotel room window when nobody else seems to have had the faintest (laughs) clue and i saw that i feel like that gives him uh some kind of it feels like it gives him some kind of intellectual privilege in the film that I, I i doesn't feel consistent with the the kind of loving satire that you're getting at 
Yeah, true enough. That said, they he Wilder does spend so much time focusing on his shoes, on his spats in yeah. particular. Right. And I always got the sense that that was Wilder's way of poking fun at uh, at the vanity of men who say that they're not vain, even though they're as vain as as the yeah. women at stereotype that exists. Right. Like here's someone who is just like over like obsessed with spats, it's like a frivolous piece of clothing to put over your shoes. And um, and meanwhile, like Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon are running around in heels the entire time. Like right. it's a, the, the way shoes function in this movie are pretty, is is pretty delightful. Uh, let's talk about Jack Lemmon's character a little bit longer, because I do feel like that is the, the the most interesting hinge that this movie um, bends on. Of of the two of them, he is the one that begins having by having a completely different relationship with this new identity than Joe does. I mean, Joe becomes Josephine. Joe suggests that <clears throat> Gerald become Geraldine. Geraldine does not want to be Geraldine. Geraldine immediately wants to be Daphne. So we, we end up in this situation where <clears throat> we end up in this situation where Joe is able to sort of easily slip in and out. It is a costume for Tony Curtis's character that can be easily taken on and off. And we see with Tony Curtis's character that he also will then put on the costume of being rich shell oil executive. So kind of playing in and out of costume is a very normal, habitual thing for him to be able to do. He seems to be living in that kind of classic Elizabethan um, comedy of errors and mistaken identity. Jack Lemmon's character is living in a different kind of plot, yes. where he immediately becomes Daphne, and being Daphne becomes immediately more comfortable to him than he expects. And I... I I'm going to keep using that kind of th th that masculine pronoun, but I know it gets in some ways, in some ways kind of gets complicated or could get complicated. Yeah. He immediately, he, he becomes more comfortable in this character than he expects to be and becomes more comfortable in this relationship with this kind of doting older rich guy, Osgood than he expects to be. And so while the movie kind of expects him to throw elbows at it, and he does at moments, he also, by the end of it, is is very much kind of planning their wedding ceremony and no. has to be talked out of it. It's amazing. That scene um, is incredible. Right. So, like, just help me think through the resonance of, of that sort of complexity for the whole film as for the film as a whole. Well, so I, I think that the film does a really good job of showing this sort of movement as as incremental as it is right so first he 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 has to convince tony curtis that this is the way out and then finally tony curtis says okay let's do it um so they have to sort of hit rock bottom to even consider the fact that they are um that that they need to do this uh and as they do jack lemon again like he said he he sort of chooses a name and then he's attracted to the Marilyn, to Sugar, Marilyn Monroe's character, and they're going to have a little party in their bunk. Um, and in, as he does that, he, uh, well, before that, actually, he, he, he saves Sugar from being kicked off of the band because he, he says, oh, that's my flask. Right. And 
Um, and so suddenly now he's in solidarity with the women who are there. Right. Yep. And so he he there's like one more little incremental pull, and then he thinks that oh I'm gonna go and spend time with Marilyn Monroe, maybe I'm gonna get laid, and um, and then all of these other women start showing up to the party, and he's it's such an incredible scene. His his acting in that mo- that moment of like being frantic and trying to kick everyone out. But he gets to see like, oh, I'm playing with these. These are my people. And then I think the the moment that is like sort of astounding to me is the decision where he's going to go put on a woman's bathing suit and play in the ocean with the right. rest of them. Yeah. Like that is he has now crossed the Rubicon. Because it's not like. He has a co- It was a costume before that. But now this is slowly becoming part of his life. And then cool. Osgood's sort of presence in his life and then him dancing and the sort of that's played for laughs and, and him leading too much and um, all of that sort of you sort of see this slow incremental moment where finally the Jack Lemmon character is like, hey, I really like this. I actually prefer this to the life that I was living when I was poor. I had and I had a partner who was like um, I had my heteronormative partner who would um take my money and bet it on dogs and lose my coat. Right. Um, I would actually rather hang out with these women. And, and I think, you know, it, it moves from, I'm going to dress in women's clothing because it is an immediate need of safety. It is a refuge that I have because this, this masculine gangster world has got me in its sight and I need someplace safe. And this provides safety and refuge. But if he, if, if, if Daphne is only interested in safety, then the obvious thing to do once you get to the hotel is just stay in your hotel room the whole time. Right. And, and so I think you're right. That move of like, I am now going to go put on a bathing suit and go frolic in the ocean with the other girls is not in any way serving the needs of hiding from the gangsters who are out to get you. It is now only serving your own needs of, doing this thing that brings you joy and life and that i think is 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 where all of a sudden the kind of possibilities begin to open up and explode yeah so i i think there's something really interesting going on at least i did a little research in the film criticism of this movie just because i thought i wish wanted to see what people were saying in part because it is so um unique for this moment in time Um, and there are basically two a- avenues of, of thought with respect to the movie. And one is that, obviously, that it's an early queer movie. Sure. And it's intentionally blurring lines between feminine and masculine, between gender identity. And it's trying to call into question the particular categories that define appropriate courses of love or attention, attraction, things like right. that. And the, the great and the romantic lo- climax is Tony Curtis dressed as Josephine going up and kissing Marilyn Monroe full on the mouth in front of everybody. I mean, that's the uh, anyway. Yes, mm-hmm. go. Yeah. And, and so the last and the last line of the movie is the tell, right? We want what we want. Right. Why cage ourselves? Right. Like, why apologize? Nobody's perfect. Um, and there's a there's a film commentator, Brandon French, in the 70s. He says some like it hot affirms what what some like it hot affirms is neither heterosexual nor homosexual nor even female, but rather the abolition of these absolute poles in favor of an androgynous continuum, mm-hmm. which I actually think is a is a. A well said, right? It's a pretty good summation of the movie. The other suggestion of this movie is, hey, y'all, don't overthink it. The movie gives you everything you need to know on the first viewing. It's That's its magic. It's just a funny gag 
that continues to happen. And it's never subtle. It's never been subtle. And you're just going to get reversals and unmaskings over and over and over again. And this movie is propelled by great filmmaking, great acting, and a tried and true narrative device that is that has been valuable since the the Greeks. Uh, and I think that interpretation may need may, may be the interpretation that that needed to be true for some groups of people in order for the other interpretation to be valuable for the people who needed it to be valuable. Well said. Well said. So, you know, I, I, I the story of Wilder slipping this past censors and getting <laughs> and, and, and getting production code, I mean, slipping it past the Hayes code, getting broader approval for distribution is really interesting in and of itself. He basically games the system. And I, and I think you can see in that him saying, don't overthink it. It's just a fun romp. And also audiences and communities for whom these questions of, of gender fluidity and sexual fluidity uh, and kind of being bodies that were trapped in the wrong places and the wrong shapes and contexts, uh, this movie would, I, I can't imagine, but that this movie would have spoken unimaginably to them, uh, regardless of what the kind of official interpretive stance would be on the top. Yeah. And regardless of whether Wilder ever intended to speak to them. Right. Right. And I think that maybe that's the, the, the larger point too, which is Wilder may have wanted to make a little romp where he's, just because he's a filmmaker and likes yeah. good narrative is not yeah. going to tie everything up so tidy for you because he thinks that that's funny. Um, but I think like good humor does hold on to human experience in a, in a very real way yeah. and is able to reflect it. And whether or not he knew that that experience was something that regular people in his life were experiencing is kind of irrelevant. So let me ask you the, the question I like to ask, which is, uh, can you use this movie? At Overbrook Presbyterian <laughs> Church. You know what? Probably not. But I, maybe it would be interesting as in having a conversation about questions of queer identity among some of our older folks, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there, there are there are some generational divides that are very real within the church and even in 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 my church, where people's understanding of how to talk about this stuff or of this phenomenon feels so foreign that it feels and that foreignness is um is confused for novel or new that this, that these are new feelings that people are having in the world right. and therefore um we we shouldn't pay them that much attention because of um because of their newness right like that this is some cultural fad um and it's worth considering. I mean, I mean, your uh, your example of Shakespeare is an appropriate one. It's worth helping people consider that these questions have of identity have always been present, though our vocabulary hasn't always been large enough to encompass the right. broad experience of the world. Yep. And I think I don't know. That's like that's a that's that's where I would come into maybe using this is to try and help people see that like. Nobody's Perfect is a killer 
line and it buttons everything. Yes. But it is also a sort of moment of true tenderness. Yeah. Um, that happened in 1959. Yeah. I agree, and I, I think I absolutely could use this film. Um, I don't think there's enough um, fluency in it for me to use it from the pulpit, but I think I could use it. Uh, I mean, I think we could screen this and use it as in a conversation around gender and sexuality. I, I'm not sure I would want this to be the only thing that we right. showed yeah. because, yeah. you know, the danger is that, okay, now you're, you're watching only the a 60-year-old perspective Um uh, and I think you want to pair it with something considerably more contemporary and, and ideally from uh, a GLBT voice or something of the sort. Um, but I, I do think this film um, opens, could potentially open pathways for some folks, especially in older generations, to be able to, um, using cinematic language that they're going to be really comfortable and familiar with kind of access some of the complexities and richness of our modern conversations around gender and sexuality. And I, yeah. I, I think, I think there might be an entrance point there. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculously, um, uh, body by 1959 standards, but I think we could get away with it in 2020 in the church. God, I hope so. And <laughs> um, with you know with the right with the right setup and the right caveat, so yeah, I, I absolutely would use this. I think the danger is using it on its own without oh right without without pairing it with something um a a, a, a little more contemporary. Oh yeah, and, and because it 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 lacks a refined vision sure. around identity. Yeah, it opens the door for expressing the ambiguity of it all. Right. Uh, but doesn't do a lot of um, descriptive work in helping people understand what what it might mean to live inside of that identity. Sure, sure. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which is why the credits have to come exactly when they do. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's the end of the movie. Right, right. Like, right. It doesn't have any other ideas past that. Yeah. Before we move to preaching, we just want to say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Matt, I wrote an article. It just came out. Um, it's about smoke and a kosher barbecue festival that I went to in Philadelphia and trying to sort of make sense of the way smoke operates as a theological image. So if you want to go and read something like that, it's a little weird, but I like it. I was actually quite proud of it. Um, go and check it out on the, uh, on the Christian Century's website and we'll put a link to it on our show page. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Awesome. I look forward to reading that. But for now, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the text for Transfiguration Sunday, February 23rd. Of course, we have the Transfiguration in Matthew's Gospel. We have Moses ascending to the mountain to get the law. And then we have Peter's account of the Transfiguration in Second Peter. So as you look at these texts, what stands out to you in reflection on Some Like It Hot? You know, I think this is, is an appropriate movie for, for these texts in a lot of ways because it, it is about sort of re revelation, right? I mean, it's about the revelations that are internal to us that we don't know unless we are wearing a sort of different set of clothing. And in that way, this is, uh, I think, uh, 
interesting to consider some like it hot and transfiguration simultaneously. Um, this is actually where I think someone like Karl Barth and the sort of neo-orthodoxy movement can be pretty helpful, um, in part because they were really trying to preserve the holy otherness of God um, while also trying to uphold the idea that Christ is the revelation of God. And so God's otherness, which is outside of human apprehension, is a part of the revelation of God in Christ. And that revelation is that God is hidden, right? And so there's a little circular logic that's going inside of this particular argument that actually helps in, in some ways us to consider the transfiguration in particular, but Christ and the incarnation in, in, in general. Um, and it's, in, it's through the revelation of Christ that we realize how little we know about God, how much of God is hidden from right. us. And so that, that the revelation of Christ is itself a shadow. It is itself a hiding of God so that we can under, to the point that we can't understand things. And so we learn a lot about God, but we also learn what we don't know about God through Christ. Um, some like it hot is about these hidden identities, these revealed identities. Um, and with new clothing in a new place, I, I think it's really interesting to see Jack Lemmon's character sort of revealed through his hiddenness, right? So he's hiding himself from these gangsters, but also from the women around him. Um, he's hiding that which is, he has presented over and over and over again. But by putting on the second identity, which is still fully him, it's he has he lives into it. It as we talked about earlier, was a, an act to begin with, but suddenly becomes like a very real extension of his own identity and his own self. And he's able then to reveal something that he couldn't in his first identity. Mm -hmm. And I think something is similar, similarly happening with Jesus on the mountain, which is to say that, that Jesus walks around incarnate and we, like the early church and the early gospel writers, haven't fully understood what exactly that means. And what the full extension of that is and how that how that incarnation is revealing God's self to us. And so the gospel writers, each of them actually has a moment of the transfiguration where they allow Christ to be considered slightly differently. And so the hidden thing that is below Christ or inside Christ or around him is given a, a revelation. And the other thing that was being revealed is now hidden. And that sort of that binary of hiddenness and revealed, um, I think, has some some theological and some scriptural depth to try and mine about those things that that we do once we put on new identity and then once we take on identity. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's akin to what is to I think it's like Richard Rohr or something says that you know we 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 ultimately are going to um, we don't we don't change our mind in order to change our behavior. We change our behavior in order to change our mind. Mm -hmm. That that it's our practices actually that lead us into some sort of vision of new identity. And so it's actually by putting on new clothing that we realize that that we actually do have the capacity to live into this new identity. And so there's there's some interesting things that are going on there. Uh, what about you? As you read this particular passage and as you watched some like it hot, how did they intersect? I mean, I, I think you're on it. And the, the nature of Transfiguration Sunday is that, you know, all these texts are hanging out around some of the same thematic issues. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to find a totally different thread. I, I, I do think 
in what you're mining, we still need to wrestle with how both the gospel text resolves and how the film resolves. <laughs> um, it, it seems like the danger of heresy, it seems like the gospel text may have a little bit to learn from um, how the film how the film resolves or which is to say how the film doesn't resolve uh, you know we've talked already about the, the the um nobody's perfect kind of messiness at the end of this which i think is is the linchpin on which this film hangs and by contrast matthew's gospel and the transfiguration stories in general have this habit of trying to put everything back in the bottle and close the lid afterwards uh, we go back down the mountain and Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, that plays a little bit in the film. I mean, uh, at one point, Sugarcane says, if only my mother could see me now. And Josephine says, I hope my mother never finds out. <laughs> but on the other hand, we do have this sense of something has happened in that film at that in, in the experience of. For Josephine and Daphne, maybe particularly for Daphne, that that can never be un that can never unhappen. There's something that permanently changes for those characters that can't be cleaned up, and right. I, and I want us to push against the the kind of they go back down the mountain and everything goes back to normal because we can't talk about it narrative that shows up at the end of these transfiguration stories. I mean, mm -hmm. think about the, the contrast with um, the contrast with the Exodus narrative where yep. God transfigures into a cloud and you can see that for miles, right? It is not, that is not a private contained experience of transfiguration. That is continental. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is, has this kind of what's my secret truth that I'm not telling anybody thing about it that I, I just think needs a lot of deft attention. And, 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 then, and so that's, that's where I wrestle. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think that Exodus narrative is a good place to start for complicating some of the transfiguration too, which is, it's just, it's not just the cloud and, but it's also Moses, like Moses sees God but he himself has some physical transformation where his face starts to glow. Right, right. That he can't hide, at least, or he tries to hide, ultimately. Like, I guess, like, you know, the, the account in Hebrews gives this very strange, like, explanation about why he wears a veil. But, um, but he comes down and he freaks everybody out because he has been in proximity to God in such a way that he has had a physical manifestation so that the revelation of God that Moses experienced is getting refracted off of Moses's own face. And we don't get that in the gospels, right? right. We, um, we, we're supposed to get the sense that, that this is a, at least to Peter, James and John, that this is a revelation of God to them in order to what to 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 steal their confidence in what is to come, um, to give them some insight for leadership going forward. It, it's not exactly clear why Peter, James, and John are up there. It, um, 
but you get the sense that that the text is saying that there is this revelation is shining somewhere on them and they're going to need whatever reserve of change happened on that mountain going forward. Um, I would prefer that they shined a little bit <laughs> like, like Moses just in the, in the story. Um, in part, because it, it would at least suggest that the revelation has it landed, right? That it, 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 it had some effect reading this through the lens of some like it hot and then sort of by extension through questions of gender and sexuality you can get to this interpretation of the gospel which is um the reason this all has to be contained is because the real world down at the base of the mountain is not ready for who jesus really is right yeah so like peter's desire to build houses and stay there is because he doesn't want to have to figure out how to integrate this reality of Jesus and the complex reality of Jesus with a world that he has decided in that moment is, is not ready to hear it. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Oh, it becomes this kind of tactical concession, right? To yeah. the, to, to the world as it is. And I don't know if I think that theologically sticks with the text, but I think it's a, an interpretive stream that we need to wrestle with a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that we need to decide what how comfortable we are with with, with that. Uh, so that's that's I think that's a little bit of where yeah, I'm but push, where I'm pushing and where I think the OT narrative ends up having this incredible vitality to it. Well, and I think some like it hot. It's is itself uh, not a concession, but it is measured, right? Sure, of course. It it it's it's obviously going to piss some people off, and did, right? But it it wasn't straight on. It's a it's a it's an oblique movie right. with respect to its understandings of gender and identity. Um, it's not straight on. It's you know there aren't there aren't two men kissing right. Osgood and Jack Levin never have an amorous kiss. Um, there is the sort of vague inference of Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe kissing, but you're never under the impression that Tony Curtis is anything but male and straight. Um, and so in some ways, some like it hot actually kind of occupies that in between space, right? Which is like, we want things to be a particular way, but we are aware that the world is not particularly ready for this. And so whether it's, you know, you use the word tactical, I think like strategy strategy, for future change demands some uh, some time. And maybe that's why Peter's uh, setting up tents, maybe not to stay there forever, but to like, like okay, let's figure this out, right? right yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going down into a world where it's not going to, this isn't going to be received easily. And we have to just think through what's going to happen. All right. Well, I think that wraps up a conversation of Some Like It Hot. I really enjoyed getting a chance to revisit this movie. We've done Double Indemnity already, but there's a decent chance that we could just turn this whole podcast into a Billy Wilder appreciation podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, I made Adam listen to this before we came on the air, and now I'm going to make you all listen to it. Uh, in, th in the 1950s, Billy Wilder makes Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, Sabrina, The Seven-Year Itch, Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment. 
I, I would ask you to submit um, your nominations for directors who had better decades than Billy Wilder in the 1950s. That is an yeah. astonishing run of incredibly so textured films. Those uh, movies are all really good right. in various different genres, right? They're not all the same. They're not all comedies. They're not all dramas. They're not all procedurals. They're all really good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But for now, we are going to pivot and uh, and talk about postludes. It's time for our last segment. Uh, just another chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? You know, so I watched this movie and then ran across a really interesting article in The Nation by um, an author, Channing Gerard Joseph. And uh, and it's an article about a particular early drag queen named William Dorsey Swan who held drag balls in the late 19th century. He was a, a former slave. And after the Emancipation Proclamation, he moved to D.C. and started having these uh, drag balls. Um, it's a really fascinating article uh, about the ways in which um, drag in particular, but gender identity and its fluidity has been in the water of this country for a very long time. And specifically in this case, among communities of color, um, I, I was deeply inspired by the article and by William Dorsey Swan, who is a, I, I think should be considered a very, very, very early queer activist. And, um, and there is a moment where um, his, he is arrested for running a brothel, more or less, but it's generally running a, um, and it probably was a brothel, but uh, among other things, held these balls. And in the midst of it, um, he started fighting with the police and there was a sort of like mini riot that happened in his, in his establishment. Um, and Channing Gerard Joseph goes on to say that this was one of the first recorded incidents of a sort of like um, violent queer resistance that predates Stonewall by, you know, 100 years. Um, it, pretty, pretty fascinating piece. And we'll, uh, we'll put a link to it on the uh, on the show page. But I think, you know, I was reading this and I'm thinking William Dorsey Swan, you know, and, and this work long, long before, like some like it hot sort of long, long before we had vocabulary to talk about this stuff. You know, I think he belongs in the in the book of the righteous. So that's my postlude, Matt. How about awesome. you? I love it. Uh, mine is not quite so serious. Uh, I just spent a lot of time on airplanes over the last couple of weeks and I've watched some terrible movies here. My very, very brief reviews of them. Fast and, <laughs> Fast and Furious Hobbs versus Shaw is, is not great, though. If you're on an airplane, fine. Um, to, uh, the, it's a perfect airplane movie. Is 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 a totally reasonable airplane movie. Uh, the new Terminator movie, uh, I actually thought was halfway decent, was slightly oh. better than I had been led to believe. Not like a classic by any stretch, but if you're on an airplane, by all means, especially if you have some Terminator fluency in your system somewhere. Uh, I watched yesterday the movie about the guy who wakes up in a world where everybody has forgotten the Beatles and he gets to coast on their success and re-release all of their songs. And that movie is terrible. And I will, <laughs> I, I will, I will not um, be gracious to arguments to the contrary. Um, but the movie that I watched on a plane that I loved, and I'm a little bit not surprised, but a little sad that it hasn't gotten more end of year play. Um, is a little film called Wild Rose. Have you heard of this movie? No, I actually haven't. So Wild Rose is about is a, by a guy named Tom Harper. It stars a, a, a new star named Jesse Buckley. And it is the story of a woman from Glasgow 
Um, she gets out of prison at the very beginning of the movie. She's got a complicated family system. She's kind of navigating her complicated family system in Glasgow. Um, but what she really wants to do with her life is go to Nashville and be a country and Western singer. And Jesse Buckley has the distinction of being a woman from Glasgow who is preternaturally gifted at country Western singing. Uh, and this movie is just as charming as it could possibly be and deeply loving without being saccharine um, because it takes the complexity of her life really seriously and is not kind of a rags to riches story. It is not mm. um, uh, an American dream myth. It is something much more textured and much more resonant. And also she can sing and the way that they love country music and it's in all of its lovableness and the way that they stage that within Glasgow, within a poor neighborhood in Scotland, within a within her family structure is just spellbinding. So I, I heartily recommend this movie to you. I admittedly have a deep soft spot for kind of classic country and western, and so this movie was right up my alley. But if you've yeah. got if you've got any kind of Johnny Cash love in you anywhere or something of the sort, this thing is for you. Please go I watch do. Wild Rose. So All right. It's on my list. The last time it's I recommended like... a movie that heartily on this show, it was Parasite, and it just won Best Picture. <laughs> so I'm just saying. I'm... I couldn't watch Parasite with my wife. I probably watch Wild Rose with her. Yeah, you so... could absolutely watch Wild Rose with your wife. All right. That's the end of our show. If you like it, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. A big thanks to him and his band. Where's my bourbon? Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.